Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 102 and it is with Amy. I sat down with Amy in Los Angeles in her home and we chatted about her work in the field of cannabis. She is a researcher and an advocate and an author. Uh, She is one of the authors of the book Cannabis Pharmacy and um, has really fascinating. We talked about all sorts of things, THC and uh, CBD and the difference between indica and sativa and the flora of the gut and how it is, uh, how it deals with cannabinoids. It's a really hard word to say cannabinoids. Do, 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 do. Anyway, um, it was a really wonderful conversation. She was super open. We did just use her first name because the laws in California are still, you know, they're still working things out and we just wanted to protect her that way. I've got a ton of really great links for Amy's episode on heyhumanpodcast.com on the links page. And, uh, Just want to remind everybody, please subscribe, rate and review, but really especially subscribe. Um, Let's get those numbers to keep climbing. It's doing really well, and I'm super excited and thankful for all the support you guys are are giving to Hey Human. You know how to find me on social media, Hey Human Podcast. And always, always, please feel free to reach out to me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I love hearing from you. Um, I answer every, every email. So please uh, definitely reach out. The Amazon affiliate uh, is on the homepage. So if you shop at Amazon, click on that uh, portal on the homepage of heyhumanpodcast.com and you will be taken to Amazon where you shop anyway. And if you do so through the portal, it helps support Hey Human. So I really appreciate that. I do want to mention that we talk about her website um, that was being built when she and I were talking. It was supposed to be up by now, and um, it, I went and looked today. It's not up yet, but please uh, keep checking back because I think it's going to be a really cool website. It's called the Canna Review, T-H-E-C-A-N-N-A-R-E-V-I-E-W, the Canna Review. Um, definitely keep checking for that, and when her website does go live, I'll have a link for it on Hey Human podcast as well, but you can find it obviously through the link itself once it's live. All right, well, um, I'm excited for this episode. Again, thank you for listening and let's get started. Here we go. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you today? I'm well, how are you? Great. Thank you for being on Hey Human. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So, we are in sunny California and every ounce of my being wants to move here. From Nashville. I love it here. It's pretty great. The vibe is so cool. I do. I love it here. Um, I appreciate you being on the show. And we are going to talk about cannabis today. Great. So explain to them a little bit of, of your who you what you do. Well, I'm a researcher, so I look at the pharmacology of how cannabinoids work in the body, mm-hmm. both those made by the cannabis plant and those made by our bodies by our body and also those made by other plants and I look at how those work within our body to kind of tune how our body works Mm -hmm. and then I take that information and I kind of decode it so that other people can understand it. Okay what got you into that? Um, I was asked by a friend to look at how products are made 
because I had a background in molecular gastronomy. And molecular astronomy? Mm-hmm. G- gastronomy. Oh, gastronomy. Yes. gastronomy. I was like, awesome. So, um, so he wanted to know kind of how these things might work. And I've always had an interest in how things work in the body and how we can tune the body to be more efficient. And so, he, and then that became kind of a journey into looking at the science. Mm-hmm. Um, and the science was fascinating. And it was so much more broad and applicable than I ever expected it to be that, um, that it, really, it really drew me in caught my interest yeah kind of I kind of haven't I've never met a problem I didn't like so I really like to solve things and it's fun to be kind of on the front edge of something yeah definitely um is it's now legal in California to um you know it, it is legal quote unquote but it is there's a lot of gray areas there's a little there's still a lot of areas where um purveyors and people can kind of find themselves on the wrong side uh, of the law, so to speak, but um, but yes, it technically you can, you can visit California, walk into a store, and buy cannabis. Yeah, it seems mm-hmm. like a, a great leap forward. It really is. I mean, the laws need to kind of catch up, and in some ways, the laws didn't go quite far enough. Um, it's going to be pretty onerous of a of a hurdle for a lot of people to get over, and very expensive. How do you mean? What? Um, in terms of just it's very it's a very bureaucratic process. Um, the state's, you know, doing a pretty good job of laying things out, but there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of consistency issues, a lot of, um, a lot of people having to figure out how to do it in a regulated market, and that's expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be, that's going to be a little tough for some folks. Um, but you're going to really probably need investment to be able to do it. I wonder if they're going to let people out of jail who have pot offenses. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of a lot of jurisdictions looking at things like that. I think yes. they should. I mean, yes. if you're going to legalize it. It's yeah, and, and then there are there are places like L.A. where they're looking at um, looking at communities that were more impacted by the drug war than others, and they're looking at helping some of those individuals in those communities and people. For instance, in Santa Barbara, if if you have um, there's a certain level of crime. I, th- I think it may be a felony, or if you have a felony, you have kind of a, an advanced standing in terms of getting a license to grow now, ironically. What? Um, so yeah, so it's an interesting thing where you know you can look at certain jurisdictions are considering that, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. So how I got into this was I was interested in the, in the chemistry of food and how, how we can eat, what we eat, affects how healthy we are. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, so for instance, if I eat a lot of sugar, and I have a tendency toward anxiety or depression, it may actually trigger that. Um, and so I was very interested in those kinds of relationships within the body, mm-hmm. between what we eat, how we feel, what we eat, and how much energy we have, issues like that. It is interesting, considering what sugar does to the human body, that it isn't regulated, and yet something like yeah. cannabis, this natural herb that has been shown time and time again to be really beneficial as far as medicinal purposes, mm-hmm. Um, and a myriad of other things, paper, rope, clothing, um, sure. that it's vilified so yeah, much. Yeah, it is an interesting. It's, 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 it's a very politicized topic. I mean, and it's also especially fascinating when you realize that there are a few medicines as quote-unquote natural as cannabinoids, or the active, which are the active ingredients in cannabis, because our body makes its own cannabinoids called endocannabinoids. Endo means within. So in this case, these are cannabinoids made by our bodies to regulate physiological processes across the spectrum. We literally do not have a tissue in our body that, that does not contain receptors that accept endocannabinoids. Isn't that fascinating? So every single tissue in the body has the ability to take up cannabinoids. And the body is using those 
to regulate a host of physiological processes or modulate. So it's regulate and modulate a host of processes. So it's a very homeostatic system, so it's all about balance. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I have damaged the epithelial layer of my gut, which is the interior layer of my gut, or I have a cut on my finger, in both of those cases, the body will literally make more receptors at that site to take up cannabinoids that it releases to help those, those, that damage heal. Hmm. But in the, in the words of like Vincent DeMarza, who's a very well-known researcher in this space, um, the things that the, the cannabinoids do are help us to forget, mm -hmm. help us to sleep, mm -hmm. help us to eat. Um, so it's regulating different you know, kind of facets of our physiology. Well, that's it's something you just brought up is interesting to me, uh, the forgetting. So cannabis for PTSD. Absolutely. And, 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 and also in cases like if a woman was to remember how painful natural childbirth mm -hmm. was, she'd probably never do it again, right? So there are cases when we need to forget mm -hmm. and when our body needs to kind of a nudge in that direction. And there are also other instances of this. For instance, um, there's some really fascinating research out about how our body handles addiction. Mm -hmm. And there are associations and memories that we create during that process of kind of for the formation of an addiction. For instance, if someone's trying to quit smoking and they walk into a bar, that may be a trigger for them to smoke. So there's some pretty interesting evidence to, to support the idea that certain cannabinoids can actually help break those associations. Interesting. So that's also kind of forgetting in that way also. So I would think that science would be super excited about all the potential and would fight the lobbyists keeping it squashed, but yeah, it's I mean, money against money, I suppose. Well, what's interesting is that they are. They are very excited. Um, and there are, you know, there are pretty strong lobbies. I mean, you know, alcohol lobby and other lobbies that are pushing back. Um, there's a lot of money for law enforcement that comes from seizure. Mm -hmm. um, so there is, there are seizures and search and seizure. Um, yeah, yeah, seizure of property, seizure things like that. Um, but that's not really so much my my focus. I sure. really, I really am not as much in, as as involved on the political side of it as I am the, the kind of science and research side. Um, but yes, there are. There are definitely is an enormous scientific community that is interested in this space because now we also, you know, the more we know about, for instance, the functioning of the gut and immunity and how important gut health is to immunity, well, cannabinoids are right in the front line of that. Wow. So there is even some research to suggest that it is cannabinoids because cannabinoids, in a sense, are a, a chemical messer, messenger, much like a neurotransmitter. So there's a lot of science to, or there's some science to suggest that cannabinoids may be the link between mind-body, mm. so that they are, are kind of the link between those two kind of facets of our health. So what's the difference between CBD and THC? Um, so CBD is a homeostatic regulator, which means it's, its job is to restore balance. And it primarily interacts with a receptor um, that, is, that is not capable of making you high, so it's called a CB2 receptor. And, uh, and what it's doing with that is it's often coming in and kind of calming the system and bringing balance back, but it actually has the ability to kind of work in both directions, both to stimulate something or to calm it. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you know, CBD is kind of a, a great balancer for the, for the body. And THC, are the, 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 and these are the two kind of primary cannabinoids, but there are dozens of them. These are just the two that you hear about the most, THC and CBD. And THC works on a receptor, primarily on a receptor called CB1, 
And CB1 is capable of quote unquote making you high. So that's kind of side effect of making you high is through that, that CB1 receptor. And that's why THC can make you high, but CBD cannot. Hmm. And it's absorptive even through the skin, right? Um, THC is not very well absorbed with the skin at all. Um, it often needs um, some help to get through. There are things that get THC to the skin, but they're also good at getting lots of other things through your skin that you don't want. So for instance, um, there's an ingredient called DMSO that will allow THC to pass more readily through the skin, but unfortunately, if you have it in your system, it will allow things you do not want to pass through your skin to pass through also. CBD is better at getting through the skin, but either you're going to have to have something like a surfactant, um, which is a, an ingredient used in lotions and, mm. and creams um, that allows things to cross more readily over the, bar the skin barrier, or you're going to need a lot of it <laughs> So you know, in the formulas so that it actually some of it makes it through. Sure. Does that make sense? So a lot of the products that are out there, there isn't enough knowledge about how they work. So just because there's a THC cream doesn't mean it's actually going to do anything for you. So the, those CBD, uh, in Nashville, the, and there's a couple health food stores that sell the CBD drops, and those mm -hmm. seem to be really popular. Um, yeah, CBD drops can be great. Um, but, but, you know, typically a drop you're not putting on your skin, you know, you're taking internally, right? So you can, depending on, excuse me, no, okay. depending on how it's formulated, um, you know, you're looking at what part of the body you're trying to get it to mm -hmm. and what the most efficient way to get it to that part is, mm -hmm. right? So if you are using drops and they are in a, in a base, let's say, of sesame oil or some other kind of fat, they may not be very well absorbed at the mouth and you mm -hmm. may actually need to swallow them so that the stomach and the liver and the gut have a better chance at kind of getting those ingredients out because it may be that those parts of the body are better at that. Yeah, right. I get insomnia sometimes, and I take uh, Dr. Moxley's. Uh, they're they're a little bit of CBD, they're a little bit of THC, like five milligrams or something like that. And mm -hmm. I take one about a half an hour before bedtime, and mm -hmm. works like a charm. I sleep through the night. I sleep deeply. I don't wake up groggy or weird. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and what form are those in? Are those something you dissolve in your mouth? Yeah, or you, you chew dissolve it in your mouth. Yeah. Um, it might actually be more effective if you were to chew and swallow it. Really? Um, because when you dissolve something in your mouth, um, you're absorbing it through the buccal tissue, the B-U-C-C-A-L, buccal tissue of the mouth, and or under the tongue sublingually. And those two areas don't have as much of a filter hmm. before they enter the bloodstream, right? Mm -hmm. So it's more the effect we're going to talk about kind of the side effects of the THC or the CBD in terms of how it makes you feel. Mm -hmm. um, those effects are more clear and functional. But if you took the same thing, so if you took that same small, you know, five milligram dose and you were to chew and swallow it, then your stomach and liver change the Delta 9 THC into a different drug. And so it's 11 hydroxy Delta 9 THC. And that THC, that form of THC is much, it's about one and a half to two times as potent because the form itself is potent at a lower dose. Mm. And it's more of a, uh, it's more of an effect that is more of a body high, so it's better for pain and sleep. So it's a heavier, broader effect. Mm -hmm. And so, but it also takes longer. So you're looking at 45 minutes to an hour, so you'd have to back up your time a little bit. Yeah. But you'd be more, you'd be less likely to build a tolerance or need to increase your dose because you're using the body's own mechanisms to increase the strength of that, and you're changing it into something that is better at that job. 
That's interesting. So if you were to take that, let's say you had a severe panic attack or something during the day, and you wanted to take that same candy during the day and have it be more clear and functional, or let's say you wanted to split it in half, because that, you know, around two and a half milligrams would be approximate to about a glass of wine in terms of inebriation, right? Um, then if you did, were to dissolve that in your mouth, it would be more clear and functional. Mm. But again, swallowing the same dose is heavier, stronger, heavier, and more of a body high. So better for sleep, right? But that does beg the question too, it sounds like you might have something that's around like a one-to-one -one dose. In other words, a ratio of CBD to THC that's roughly one-to-one. Um, if that's the case, that can work pretty well for sleep. If you had by some chance had two products, let's say you had a CBD product and a THC product, and you were to dramatically increase the, the CBD and keep the THC at five milligrams, you might actually have issues sleeping. And the reason is, is that this is a good example of how CBD works. So CBD, being a homeostatic regulator, if you're very, very tired or sleep deprived and you take CBD, it will make you very tired. So for a day or two until you kind of caught up on your sleep, you'd be pretty exhausted. But after that, then what would happen is your body would have caught up on sleep and then actually CBD can kind of perk you up a little bit at the wrong time. So the only way to really avoid that is to go one-to-one -one CBD and THC. So, but you may not actually need the CBD at that point to have that THC work the way that you need it to be. It's right? interesting that the eating it versus, uh, I have friends who, who smoke pot. Um, I don't because I'm a singer, so I don't want to smoke anything. Sure. Um, but I remember, well, I smoked pot in high school, like a high school student does. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. But, um, <laughs> and I remember when I was in college, I went to this beach house vacation-y thing and uh, with a bunch of people and I ate a, a cookie off the counter and I did not realize that somebody, it just said, eat me on it. And I was like, yay, because I like cookies. And I ate the cookie <laughs> and it was a pot cookie. And I got, so, it got way higher than I ever got when I used to smoke pot. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I thought, yes. what is this strange mm -hmm. brew? That and that's why, and that's, I mean, not that you can't reach that point via inhalation, but it's a lot easier to get to that point with eating something. And, and you're also kind of pointing out something that often does happen where someone, let's say you had had just a quarter of that cookie and maybe that would have been okay for you, but given that it might not take effect for 45 minutes to an hour, you could be like, well, you know what? I think I'm gonna have some more. And that's where we really find people get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And we, we call that you know, kind of a cookie casualty. And, um, but it's actually a very a miserable experience for mm -hmm. someone. And you can really intense. feel pretty out of control. You can be nauseous, you can be paranoid. Yeah. Um, you can even, you know, you can even, you know, feel so nauseous that you might want to throw up. Yeah. It's a really unpleasant experience. Um, but that's one of the things that I'm interested in kind of debunking some of the kind of potential pitfalls like that to tell mm -hmm. people kind of, this is what to expect from a dose about like that. Now, there is a bell curve and some people are gonna fit on that bell curve mm -hmm. in terms of their response to something. People are gonna be, other people are gonna be outside of it. Mm -hmm. But there are some general guidelines that you can follow to help kind of not find yourself in that position. Yeah, I was thankful that I had also taken LSD in high school. So, uh, and I didn't just eat one cookie because I didn't know they were pot cookies. And mm -hmm. I love cookies, I ate two. And I got higher than I remember ever being on LSD on those two pot cookies. A, I wasn't expecting it. B, I hadn't been stoned in a really long time, not since high school. And so my body's like, uh-oh. Thankfully, I had done drugs in the past, so I didn't flip out. 
and thankfully I was at the beach, so I just drank water and rode it out. But I was so high, and I imagine that if I had never done a drug, that would have been a terrifying experience. Sure, and, and the fact and that they didn't be... write it on the bag like these are puck. That, yeah, absolutely. I know. mean, and it's and it's also that you know people think well. I mixed up my brownie batch really, really well, or you know, or I I did warn people, and even you know, baked goods are always going to be pretty inconsistent just from the way that they're made. Mm-hmm. So you know, if there was a way, usually what what's happening is you're binding the active ingredients to a fat because the active ingredients are lipids, they're fats. So whether it's the cannabinoids or the essential oils that you're adding, um, those are fats. And in order to keep them kind of in the solution or in the batch. You have to bind them to another fat. Um, it's not unlike making vanilla ice cream where people will make cream with vanilla to kind of protect the flavor, and then they'll put it in the ice cream, right? So when you make a baked good, it's impossible to have that butter, usually, go completely consistently through mm. the entire batch. So you will always have patches mm. that are stronger. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of people tell me stories about how they were in college and they ate the brownie. Everybody else was fine, but they ate that one brownie that just, you know, laid them down. And it's really common. Yeah. And it's because you're never really going to make a baked good that's consistent for that there's, reason. There's that classic scene in Taxi where mm-hmm. Jim is mm-hmm. in college and he's super smart and, you know, totally together. And he takes a bite of the brownie and becomes... That's right. That's crazy right. I mean, it's, you know, and, it's a and great it's, moment. And it is. History. It is. It is. And, and it, but it's a terrifying experience. I mean, the good news is, is that nothing, the cannabinoids themselves will never kill you. Um, you know, you're just going to be miserable for a while. Right. You, you know, so cannabinoids themselves will never kill you. Yeah. You're just going to be miserable for yeah. a while. Right. Totally. You're going to be really uncomfortable. And because I'd had my own experiences, I, I, it was just like, ah, great. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I just got to ride this well, out. Well, thankfully, you knew you know, you kind of knew what was happening, yeah. right? I mean, that, that element of surprise can be pretty frightening for people yeah. if they don't expect it. I yeah. mean, there are, I've heard stories here of, you know, someone's housekeeper eating something and not knowing what was going on and thinking they were having a heart attack or oh, other things. Yeah. So it can be pretty frightening for people. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in kind of preventing from happening sure. is how is it that we can help people to understand what dosing looks like so that they're not surprised, so that they don't find themselves in a situation where they feel out of control. Do you feel like um, the use of this will will make its way into hospitals and psychi- you know, psychiatric work? Absolutely, and in some cases it already is. I mm-hmm. mean, if you look at Israel, they um, the work that's been done there, the, the primary ca- you know active ingredients in cannabis were discovered by a scientist in Israel, named Dr. Raphael Meshulam. And it is. That's right. There you go. And so, you know, some amazing, he's done some amazing work. He was very, very ahead of the game. And so, you know, but in Israel, they are using cannabinoids to help older people, usually, um, to manage, you know, things, issues related to health where cannabinoids can be effective. So they are being used in hospitals Mm -hmm. in certain areas of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? This is something I've always wondered. Why does marijuana make people have cotton mouth what is that about I mean it's actually it's actually just dry mouth it's you know most people will think that they are becoming dehydrated um, but they're not Uh, and cannabinoids themselves are they do pull pull moisture from the body and what's interesting is that if let's say for instance you and this is a good way to understand how our own cannabinoids work too Let's say you are driving down the road and someone pulls out in front of you and you have a near miss, 
So your heart rate is up, if you're sweating a little bit, maybe even your, now all the blood is flowing toward the abdomen, toward the heart, right? It's kind of that fight or flight, you know, there's a bear, I gotta run kind of feeling. Um, and so you pull over and you're trying to calm down. Well, what the body does at that point is release its own cannabinoids to help that process happen. And it does it because they're acting as, signal, as signals in the body. The cannabinoids are going upstream, so to speak, in order to calm the incoming signals. So, you know, this is a good way of explaining how the cannabinoids work in the body and how we, when we introduce cannabinoids, how they work also. And so this is related to your question about dry mouth. So when you have like a near miss in a car, you know, and you, you pull over, you didn't hit anything, but you kind of thought you were going to, um, and your heart rate's up, and you might be sweating a little bit, and you know, your hands might be tingly and numb from the blood flow kind of rushing toward the heart. All of those things that happen in a fight or flight response, cortisol, adrenaline releases, things like this. What happens is the body releases its own cannabinoids on demand, and it's saying, time to calm down. Right, time to like actually kind of realize that you're not in danger, but that chemistry needs to be present to help you calm down. Mm -hmm. So what it's doing is it's sending those cannabinoids kind of upstream, if you will. It's a what's called a retro, retrograde signal. So when your body's own cannabinoids are sent kind of upstream, if you will, and when we say upstream, we're talking about kind of back across the synaptic gap. Mm -hmm. So remember when you were in high school. And you had that kind Barely. of... No, I'm just <laughs> so, I think we covered that. No. <laughs> right. So, so, but when you were in biology, oh, I'll help you remember, yeah. okay? So when you were in biology class, there was this drawing, it looked kind of like a mushroom. Uh -huh. And it was, there was a space between one mushroom and another. And these were, these were neurons, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a little gap between them. Well, that's called the synaptic gap. And what happens is downstream, on the downstream side of that gap, our bodies are releasing cannabinoids at that point. Mm -hmm. And then it's sending them across that gap upstream to say, actually, we don't need any more cortisol. We don't need any more adrenaline. We're the good. danger's passed. Yeah. So it's actually stopping it at its source, which is one of the reasons that cannabinoids are so helpful with things like anxiety, because it's easier to solve something when the chemistry responsible for that thing is not being produced at all. So right? what happens, can you take the body's natural occurring cannabinoids, that's a tough word to say, and extract it and then put it back within no, yourself? No, because they are literally made on demand. The body is mm. literally making them in response to something. Mm -hmm. So they're not just kind of free-floating in the body. And we're also talking about minute amounts, mm -hmm. which is one of the things that makes them difficult to study. Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about such tiny amounts. But that's actually a good cue to us, right? Because when you look at how small those amounts are and how little it takes to shift the balance of something in the body, it tells you something, well, this kind of, um, kind of Cheech and Chong model of big gulp you know, consumption of cannabinoids really is way over the top. Mm -hmm. So you know, the majority of the issues around using cannabinoids, things like dry mouth, um, can resolve themselves if you're only actually using the dose that you need rather than just dosing based on what you can withstand, which is pretty much how the model works right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not unlike, you know, speaking of high school, someone saying, hey, you know, I need a six pack. 
in order to kind of have that experience of, of drinking, you know, rather than I'm going to enjoy a glass of wine, right? right? So it's a very different kind of mindset. I need the six-pack for the experience of throwing up later. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, how miserable is that, right? And I think because even the tools that we use, the pipes and these bongs and all these kinds of things that are out there, I mean, even vaporizers, when you look at the openings in those, they look like you need a lot more than you do. In fact, the holes in most, the little hole where, you, where, where, the, where the air is moving through so that you can inhale, is usually too large to actually accommodate the tiny little dose that you actually need. So you actually pull it through. So you actually need a screen or something in the bowl to be able to hold that tiny little dose because otherwise you're just gonna, you're gonna kind of suck it through, right? Mm -hmm. So even the tools suggest, it's kind of like giving someone a, you know, an extra, extra large cup and saying, you know, go get yourself something to drink, someone is going to drink more because right. the cup itself is so large, right? right? right. But, it, but cannabinoids are more like if you've ever done any sailing and you are, you know, you're sitting on the boat and you're pushing off from the dock, it's very little resistance that you need, right? And where if that same boat, you know, were on wheels on, on land, it would take a lot more pressure to move it. So the body makes these components so it knows how to use them and it also knows how to get rid of them which is why you can take those two cookies and it'll make you miserable for a while, but then you're gonna be all right because the body knows how to get rid of them. And that is one of the main differences between how cannabinoids work and how when we introduce other compounds and medicines into our body that our body doesn't know how to get rid of, therefore it's storing them in odd places. Like an and, opioid, yeah, Like an opioid, you know, th things like this where the body doesn't know exactly how to to work with it. Now the body does make its own opioid endorphins, but um, but but it, 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 it's not processed processed in quite the same way, mm -hmm. right? So you brought up Cheech and Chong, which of course everybody knows is our our lovable stoners, Cheech and Chong from the I think the eighties. I don't know I don't know when they were, but um, and before we were on air, I was talking about that show that uh, on that Kathy Bates does. I think it's on. Netflix, I, I don't remember exactly, but, and it's about a pot shop and everyone's always stoned and it's got a lot of that stoner humor, which I imagine actually sets back the cause because if people are always thinking of pot as just this thing to get you high, then what the research you're doing where you're like, no, guess what? It does all these things that help. Right. How do you yeah, fight I mean, that model of well, you know, it's hilarity? Really <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and honestly, I have a sense of humor too. Sure. And sometimes I mean, these things fun. are really sometimes these things are really sure. funny. I'm not diving but, the show. It's a fun show, and but, I like Kathy Bates. But but, but I saying. but I hear your point, and 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 you're right. It is, you know, in, in a way, when I meet new people or I'm you know on a panel or I'm speaking with people, there is that kind of first few minutes of is she a quack, you know, or is she, um, is this real science? You know, and I even hear a lot, well, there's just not that much science out there, and actually, there is. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of articles out there. There's lots of research that's been done. Um, but you're right, we are kind of, in a way, going a little bit uphill against the, the kind of stereotypes around this. And the stereotypes are there for a reason. I mean, there's, the reason that things are funny is because there's some truth in them, right? Um, but when I look at this, I see a 12,500-year history with this plant, and I see cultures around the world that has used it for, you know, for spiritual healing and for health for thousands and thousands of years. Because people actually didn't even start inhaling cannabis or smoking cannabis until around the time of Columbus. 
So it was when tobacco kind of came into kind of European culture that we would start to see people smoke it. So it was it was it was drunk. It was eaten. So if you look at you know if you look at other cultures where that's been a history for thousands of years, mm -hmm. it's a very very different story. And to me, it's a little unfortunate when there are so many people who could benefit because there's such a broad application in the body um, and benefit with so so many fewer side effects. Um, it's you know it's it's a bit sad when you know when someone calls from kind of the Midwest and they want to be able to use cannabinoids to help them with nausea, for instance, and it's not legally available where they are, and they're also you know often you know made to feel bad, as if they're kind of taking the easy road out, which is really a shame. Um, so I hope that that kinds of conversation does start to change because while it's funny, it certainly is setting the cause back. Yeah. Um, it really isn't helping to change the kind of the way that this is viewed. Yeah, and I know that, so there's the anti-nausea aspects and there's, uh, I know, I know of people who are dealing with eating disorders where they use, okay, where they use um, uh, it to help with encouraging appetite, sure. things like that. Sure. So there are all these wonderful benefits. It's just, it's frustrating, I'm sure, to see all the other it is. stuff get It is. In fact, I, I think that actually brings up a good question because one of the things that I get asked a lot um, or that I'm writing about a good bit is, well, how could it possibly be good for so many things? And the reason is, in part, what we were talking about earlier, that there are receptors in every tissue of the body. And what it is is that if you can imagine the electrical system in your house, there are lots of ways to plug in or access that electricity. So for instance, you can directly do it by turning on a light switch or plugging in a lamp, but you can also do it at the lamp itself, right? And in a way, that's what the cannabinoids are doing in the body. So every single one of those receptors is a potential target. So when you're looking at it as a medicine, you want to look at what the body is doing with it, and then you want to say, well, how can I tune that? How can I supplement that? So when I hear, you know, kind of stoner comedy, to me, it's a little unfortunate because that is making it so that, you know, maybe a, a Midwestern housewife might, you know, feel less comfortable about using it when they really need it. Mm -hmm. And so, but I see that, the, you know, the, all these kind of plug-in spots, if you will, as a remarkable opportunity for us to learn more about how our body functions and how it communicates with itself, but also as individuals to be able to tune our health. Because so it, it kind of brings a little bit more of that power back to us mm -hmm. rather than just kind of looking to the medical establishment to say, how do I take care of me, mm -hmm. right? And it, nothing, nothing against, you know, organized medicine, but sometimes there are some, there's some shortcomings there. And there are, at least from women, I often hear that there's a, some head padding going on um, in terms of... Like it's all in your head. Yeah, dear. you know, it's, it's all in your head or, <laughs> or they'll say, you know, they'll be very disparaging about about you know cannabis and it you know and, and its benefits um, and I think that also comes back to the industry too because there are instances where there are you know they're overstating the claims mm -hmm. um, I've heard many people in the industry say you know things along the lines of you know it cures cancer and, and there are there's promising research very promising research on those fronts but we're not there yet um, you know, having a few cancer cells in a petri dish is not a person, and we can do an awful lot of harm if we overstate, because you know things like cancer treatments that are that are proven, 
or have much more have much more statistical opportunity um, to help someone heal, mm -hmm. they can. They're often medieval. You know, they're very difficult to go through, um, and so you know, people can be looking for another way, any other way. And when they hear that something is promised to cure them, they might choose to do it for a while when actually they might, might should have stuck with the original treatment. And then it might be too late. Mm -hmm. Then the cancer might spread. And then the original treatment can't help them. So I, I, I think that this, you know, the kind of over-promising is just as damaging as the kind of, you know, kind of stoner comedy end of it. I right. think both of these things. Striking a balance. <laughs> the, definitely a balance between the two. Because we know a, we know a lot, but there's still a lot to know. Yeah. So I think being more reasoned about how we describe it and what it's capable of doing, because it, what, what it is capable of doing is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, we don't actually need to overstate it for it to be valid, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a balance between the two, because in a way, I mean, I agree with uh, Dr. Andrew Wall on this, is that you have to look at the potential for harm and the potential for good. So for instance, you know, he once just, I, I was at a talk where he described that, you know, teaching someone how to meditate or to do deep breathing, well, it certainly isn't gonna hurt them, right? It might help them, and that's great if it does, but it will not hurt them. Mm -hmm. And so, when I look at this, and I look at the things that are possible, I'm balancing those two things. What is the potential for harm versus the potential for, for helping someone? Yeah. In your research that you've done, because you can only speak for what you know, I, I mean, you can read other people's research, but for you, personally, um, what do you feel is the best use of this plant? Hmm. I would say that when you're looking at, it's an interesting thing, um, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So at the bottom of the, the pyramid there, I'm gonna, I'm speaking of pulling something back from high school again, I'm kind of, <laughs> you know, I've got a little thin grip on this one. But if you look at how that works, on the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy, the bottom levels there, um, you are dealing with basic needs, you know, things like safety, um, food, sex, things that are kind of more primal needs. Um, and then right around there, you're also looking at pain, right? So before we can talk about things like mood and improving mood, we have to sometimes look at where, where is there a, such a stumbling block that is so great, for instance, pain or, you know, uh, significant anxiety that can just shut someone down and make higher level learning or actualization impossible. So often that's the door that I'm looking at going through first. Mm -hmm. So I'm, when I'm looking at where this can help, I'm looking at those things that are most pressing before, because you have to solve, if you have overwhelming pain, you need to help someone solve that before you can start talking about feeling good or having a glass of wine effect so that you can enjoy a concert, for instance, right? Sure. You have to deal with those lower levels, more pressing things. So if I had to say things that this is best for, um, that's not necessarily the view that I start with. I, I often also look at areas where I think that medicine can, that standard medicine could use a little help. For instance, the options for anxiety in terms of um, prescription medications mm -hmm. are not great. You know, um, Xanax is not good for your heart. But these things are, you know, clonopin and Xanax and these kinds of drugs are, are um, they are addictive. And so that's an area where medicine could use a little help. And it just so happens that we have something, CBD, or very light doses of THC, 
um, that where you can actually move the needle significantly on those issues without experiencing a quote unquote high. Mm -hmm. So because there are sub-psychotropic levels, and what I mean by that is it, is it amounts that are so small of THC that are actually able to, to improve anxiety without a high. And then you have, you have CBD or cannabidiol that is actually, that is able to significantly improve anxiety markers also, again, without making you high. So there are, and it's naturally processed by the body and out of the body, so you don't have a lot of the issues that you have with some of the prescription options. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking at things where this could really be useful, um, there are things like nausea, but there are some pretty decent medications for nausea too. Um, it's really good at nausea, THC and CBD are good with that. Um, so it's an option, but there are other areas where there's kind of nothing there or the option that's there is really not a great one. And so those are areas where I choose to focus. Mm -hmm. And some of those are issues related to how women age, um, how women um, deal with menopause symptoms, things like hot flashes, things like PMS. And that kind of gets back to that earlier discussion we were having about how, um, how women are treated in, in working with, you know, working, working with med the medical establishment and how there is kind of some head padding going on. Um, and now we know things like, you know, fibromyalgia are really, they're real issues. Fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in chronic fatigue, these things were, people were kind of treated like they were a little nuts. And the truth is, those are real things. And, and in fact, those two may actually be related to a deficiency in cannabinoids. So, you know, there are things that we can take seriously and maybe address better mm -hmm. with this than what is available from prescription, <clears throat> yeah. from, from prescription medications. Yeah, I'm a celiac. And mm -hmm. uh, for years and years and years, I had all these different kinds of symptoms and would go to Western medicine. And again, not to this Western medicine, but I would kept thinking, oh no, it's in your head, it's in your head, there's nothing wrong with you, mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with you. Well, it turns out there was something pretty major. Sure. You know, and it actually took a naturopath to finally figure it out. Absolutely. After years of trying to figure it out. Absolutely. And it's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, things like celiac disease, you're looking at autoimmune conditions, yes. basically. And so, you know, because let's say, you know, here we are talking about gluten, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about a protein. So, you know, gluten's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. So if you don't have celiac disease, you probably don't need to cut it out, right? But in the case of someone whose body has a sensitivity to it, mm -hmm. then it can be, you know, pretty devastating mm -hmm. uh, condition to deal with. And that brings us kind of around to immunity, which is something that cannabinoids are actively involved in in the body. So for instance, there's something called immune tolerance. And when there are issues with immune tolerance, it makes it very difficult for the body to recognize friend from foe, right? So you might be someone who's always eaten spinach, and then all of a sudden you can't eat spinach. Um, it doesn't mean that the spinach is bad or that the gluten is bad. It just means that your body is unable to recognize or process something that it should be able to do, right? And so in the case of immune tolerance, once that process starts, it can start to become kind of other things, right? So you can develop eczema or psoriasis. So a lot of these different conditions are connected and they have an origination point in the gut because the gut is like a second brain for the body. So it has as many, if not more, neural connections in the brain. So many researchers call it the second brain. And you're looking at about 90% of the, the immunity in the body is originating in the gut. And about 90% of the body's serotonin 
is made in the gut. So sometimes when you have someone like yourself who has celiac disease, they may also have some mood issues or issues with nausea because serotonin is in involved in mood mm -hmm. and in nausea. Mm -hmm. So you, have, you can have other things that appear to be unrelated. And if you're a physician that is not so aware of the interconnectedness of these bodily systems, because physicians, let's say, one person can only know so much, right? So we do have different specialties, but unfortunately, um, there's not a lot of communication with them, between them sometimes. So you can feel like, wow, my body's just falling apart, when actually maybe you're just having problems with your gut, and it's manifesting in all these different ways. My dad likes to say, hey, even, uh, oh, he says, what do you call a doctor with a C minus average? from school and he's like a doctor because even the people who didn't do well in school still get to be doctors sometimes <laughs> that, yeah, that, that is true that is true you know and you know and, my and, dad's a card yeah right <laughs> yeah you know it is true you know it's true for a lot of fields you know true for engineers and architects yeah, and things too sure. right and so you know but it's also you know in their defense a little bit we ha i have to kind of look at the fact that many of these physicians you know, went through school before this system was even discovered. Oh, totally. Right? And I think the gut thing is really relatively new in, it in is, retrospect. It is. It is, you know, relatively, you know, especially for the mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's been going on for a while, but now it's kind of trickling down, mm -hmm. right? And when you, the gut really is interesting because it starts to affect so many other systems. Mm -hmm. And because the receptors that take cannabinoids up, are a certain kind of family of receptors called GCPRs, or G-protein-coupled receptors. Well, that's a, so it's kind of like a, if you can imagine, so serotonin works along those receptors, opiates work along that type of receptor, cannabinoids work along that type of receptor. So in a way, there's like a shorthand between them. So if someone has issues with anxiety and pain, their pain signal and their experience of their pain will be more significant if they're also anxious. And also if someone's having problems with serotonin, well, that can affect how they, that can affect or make them become nauseous because these pathways in the body, it's like there's a shorthand between these types of receptors because they're related. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like if you can imagine playing guitar and you pluck the top string, but you're not using a cord to dampen the others, the other strings are vibrating too. Not quite as much, but they're vibrating too. So in a way, if you pluck one, one of these kind of receptor sets or pathways, you can affect the others as well. So these are subtleties that much like the you know, kind of use of CBD. You know, use CBD during the day, makes you sleepy when you're tired, but once you've caught up, perks you up. So these are some subtleties that I think that are sometimes lost in our desire to have kind of a clean diagram for mm -hmm. how CBD works or how the body works or the gut is over here and the brain's over there and you know so these systems we kind of want to we kind of want to separate them mm -hmm. when truthfully there's a lot more overlap like watercolor washes you can still see the wash the yellow underneath the blue right so there's a lot of overlap between them so they're affecting one another it is interesting you know Americans I'm just, mm -hmm. uh, spend a lot of time researching the food they're putting in their body. That's like a big thing for us. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's that way in Europe too, perhaps, but um, I feel like they eat more clean maybe. Um, they have tougher regulations than we do too. Yeah. So it's a little easier to eat clean because right. the regulations are strong enough sure. that you're more likely to have everything that's in, all the options are yes. more likely to be clean than they are here. Right. right. And so, and, and it's funny because it's just like my argument with guns, you know, if, if you have a gun, you should know how to take it apart, put it back together. You should go to the range. You should be able to fire that gun. You should be willing to kill someone, really, because that's an option with what that 
me mechanism can do. And the same thing, I feel like if we are partaking in alcohol, you should read about what alcohol does to the body and the brain and the gut. And same with, you know, marijuana, same with cocaine. If whatever you're choosing, it's funny where we pick and choose what we want to know about what we're doing to ourselves. Sure, and I think sometimes there's there's a fear, you know, there's a little, a little mental laziness on our part, where if we see something that we like, we kind of don't want to know, because then we might have to rethink our use of it. Donuts. Yeah, donuts, <laughs> I mean, exactly, you know? and But at the same time, you know, I think that having some knowledge really does prepare you better. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of parallels between sex ed mm. and the education that needs to happen around this in the sense that in sex education typically like a public school sex ed there is a lot of fear-mongering but not a lot of education and the audience is being totally ignored so you know their interest how does this work you know give me the inside scoop is completely ignored but they're shown scary pictures of syphilis and herpes mm -hmm. and all these things, which um, unfortunately, fear mongering doesn't work. And so you're not actually educating either. So you're not giving practical knowledge. You know, it'd, be, it'd be more helpful for someone literally to walk in with a banana and a condom, mm -hmm. put it on the condom and walk out the door than the Anything. eight hours yeah. of, of you know, herpes photos, yeah. right? And so I think that we have to kind of step back and say, you know, who's the audience? What is the information that's relevant to them? And then give them information that's actionable that they can use. Mm -hmm. And I think that's there's a desperate need for that. So yes, I do think that there is responsibility on our part if we're going to partake in this to understand how it works. Um, but I also think that you know within the cannabis industry there needs to be some responsibility for what is being provided to people because I I do talk to a good number of people in this space who want to understand it better who have gone pretty far down the path of creating products and dispensing them, but really have no idea how what they created works. Mm -hmm. And that's a little frightening. Um, it's a little frightening when you have millions of dollars in investment and you're kind of representing to your investors that you know what you're doing. Um, that's frightening. It's frightening on the level of, of, of customers, right, using these things. And, and maybe if it's a brownie, it'll never be consistent, you know, from one edge to the other. Um, so. There, I think there's a responsibility on the part of, the, of people putting it out there as well as the people using it. Um, and that's a gap that I see. And it's one of the things that I hope to in part solve with you know, the website and portal that we're putting together, the Canner Review, because I want and feel like it's so important that evidence-based information be made available. Mm -hmm. Because right now, there's a lot of information out there. It's just not very good. Um, or it may use all the right terms, but it doesn't explain it correctly. And that can be pretty problematic for people because if they can't extrapolate what they need to know and it's not factually correct, they could find themselves in a pretty bad spot. And, you know, as a woman, I see other women out there trying to, you know, explore this and experiment with it. And it concerns me sometimes when I see, or a lot, when I see oral products especially because I know how heavy and impactive they can be and how much kind of trouble you can find yourself in in terms of not feeling completely in control of yourself or your mm -hmm. judgment mm -hmm. um, that it concerns me that better dose guidance is not more readily available yeah so in your research have, has there been 
I assume since California only just made things legal here, right? I mean, medical was legal for a bit, and now mm-hmm. it's recreational right. too. Um, but what does that mean for people like you who are trying to do this research under this, you know, big brother looming ever well, closer? You know, well, I mean, for me, I, I'm not touching product, right? So I am not, you know, I, I'm not out there. I have created formulations for things for people to help them understand how to do it right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because I'm not touching product, I'm learning. So I am, you know, it's more that I'm downloading articles. Yeah. And I'm asking researchers if they would mind, you know, sharing their research for me because mm-hmm. it's not out yet or it's behind a paywall and I can't afford $200 a paper, for instance. Um, so a lot of my work is with a calculator and a highlighter, you know, and so, <laughs> and me kind of condensing things down sure. so that people can understand them. So that's really the focus of what I'm doing. So I'm not as impacted, but we desperately need we need longitudinal studies. What I mean by that is we need studies done over long periods of time. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, um, it's not unusual for people to come up to, come up to me after a training or a, a panel and say, you know, I have a son who is, you know, having serious issues, and and I'll say, well, you know, how old is your son? You know, and um, if he's not, you know, over like mid twenties and above, if he uses cannabinoids, we don't know what it does to his developing brain, and I think. Being honest about that potential for harm is as important, if not more important, for this industry going forward as it is in recognizing what it can do and help. That is a really valid thing to bring up, the fact that we are, our brains keep becoming, I mean, they do for the rest of our lives. It's not just up and through the beginning of our 20s, but that's a big deal. I mean, I think about how much pot I smoked. <laughs> it is and a I'm big like, deal. gosh, maybe I could have been a brain surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm well, okay. And I tell but... you, it starts really early. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're in the womb, our body uses cannabinoids to regulate fetal development. And then it's believed, this is emerging research, but it's believed that that system in the body then becomes the child's healing, a part of its healing mechanism, right? So we don't, because obviously we don't need fetal development once we're born. So that system then be, turns into something else. So you're talking about also in the womb, right? You're talking about regulating fetal development. That's a pretty big deal. And that'll affect you the rest of your life. So developing brains, fetal development, we need, desperately need these, you know, 20 year, 10 year studies, large enough groups, because if you think about it, Studies are often done on very small groups, 8, 10, 12 people. That's not a very big sample size. So even if you collect a lot of data and lots of little points on a graph, you still only got 8, 10, 12 people. And it could have taken millions of dollars and 20 years of someone's life to get the grant and do the research. Yeah. So you're talking about a major investment of time and money. And, but we have thousands of patients that are providing anecdotal evidence, which is self-reporting, and it has, you know, some, it has some, has some issues with that. But we need real studies. Mm-hmm. And right now, the the cannabis product that is that is available um, is coming out of the University of Mississippi for sanctioned studies in the U.S. And that product, from what I hear, is of very poor quality. So you're starting with something that isn't nearly as good as what's available on the black market even in terms of its pharmacological complexity. Um, so if you're starting with something that's not very good, 
and I don't mean not very good in terms of it gets you this kind of high versus that kind of high. I'm talking about not very good in terms of medicine, yeah. of its quality. Yeah. Um, then what's that research worth? Sure. So we desperately need change. I mean, I'm looking to countries like Portugal where they have legalized everything. Mm. Because what they're doing is they're looking at it like, it's, you know, it's also the label we give it, right? So in Portugal, they say addiction and drug use is a public health issue. So we need to do what we can do to change our perspective on it so that we are more free to address it, right? So I think I think that we could look to countries like Portugal to say, you know, how do we need to change our view on this so we can actually move the conversation forward? Yeah. And, you know, because right now, ironically, you can almost do better medical cannabis under recreational than you can medical because the medical laws do not take into, in, into consideration quality of life. And if you don't, if someone doesn't have the reason to live, then their health is affected. So, you know, so giving them ease, social ease, giving them some relief emotionally from the anxiety or stress they may be having, those things are, I would say, almost equally as important as dealing with nausea and pain. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I know it's not really part of what you do, but um, I, when, <laughs> when I was back in Washington visiting my family, um, it's legal there. And I went into the dispensary for the first time, and my 10th grade self was panicking, first of all, because I <laughs> was like, I'm going to get grounded for being in here. you know. And then you kind of go, okay, it's okay, it's legal. Um, but what fascinated me, <clears throat> again, I don't smoke it, but what fascinated me was all these different variety um, and this is for, you know, depression. This is for getting high. This is for seeing God. This is for sleeping. Right. This is for, you know, all these different varieties. And I thought, wow, the botany of it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Sure. And some of the terminology that's thrown around is just incorrectly used. So, for instance, you hear terms like sativa versus indica. Mm -hmm. um, and what dispensary staff are often referring to is a morphology or kind of a, a structure or type of plant within the kind of cannabis genus, right? And so, for instance, a sativa-type plant could be 25, 30 feet tall, growing in places, tropical areas like Thailand, Indonesia, places like this, and look more like uh, bamboo. And then if you go to places like Morocco, the plants are kind of short and squat, look kind of like Christmas trees. and you're more likely to see that that type of plant, you know, the kind of Moroccan short squat Christmas tree looking thing here in the US because those plants when the war when Nixon declared the war on drugs, those were the plants that would grow indoors. Mm. So in Morocco, you have this short squat plant because the plant's kind of protecting itself in the sun. It's holding on to its moisture whereas in tropical areas those tall bamboo looking plants are looking for sun. Like they're trying to make it to the canopy, right? So you have a a plant that has developed its morphology, its structure, based on where it's being grown. So that microclimate, just like us as people, we have little microclimates in our lives, right, that affect how we feel and, and how we respond to things. These plants do too. And they develop certain chemistries, certain combinations of essential oils or the building blocks of essential oils called terpenes that are created by those plants as secondary metabolites to deal with local pests. So if a plant has and it lives in an area where there's a lot of deer, the plant may develop something to repel deer. If it lives in somewhere where there's a lot of bugs, it may repel, it may develop something unique to deal with the bugs. Mm -hmm. So it just so happens that those 
chemical components that the plant is developing unique to its climate then have pharmacological effects on us. Mm -hmm. So if I were to provide you with a sample of, of flower material, like buds, and I were to give you exactly the same, two little samples, exactly the same weight, and they had, we tested them, and we knew they had the same levels of cannabinoids in them, okay? And let's say they both had 18% THC or 22% THC, which means that 22% of the weight or 18% of the weight was actually cannabinoids, right? That's a pretty strong flower. If I were to give you those, let's say, let's say the sample were the same, let's just pick 18, the sample was the same, and you reported back that one of them was more clear and functional, made you want to go for a hike, paint, and the other one made you want to go eat your refrigerator and take a nap, uh -huh. right? The difference between those plants is the essential oils or the building blocks of those essential oils called terpenes. So it's the terpenes that are modulating the effect. So it's like the cannabinoids are the switch and the terpenes kind of tell you where you're going to go. Isn't that interesting? Right? I had no idea. So for instance, so that's, so getting back to what we started with this, where those plants were originally grown, their local microclimates affect the morphology of the plant, like the structure of the plant, but they also affect the chemistry of the plant, which in turn affects us. So when the dispensary staff is saying, this is a sativa, they aren't using that term correctly and indicating a plant grown in, in tropical climates and with a certain structure, which is what it means. They are referring to a clear functional high, which is the effect of a plant having grown in that condition. Do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. And the same thing for indica. So they're not actually describing the, that Christmas tree clumpy kind of, kind of structure. They're describing the heavy effect of a plant grown in that environment. Because, and it's really, it's, an, it's a fascinating thing because there was a point in the late 60s, early 70s where there was a pretty well-known writer that wrote for High Times and he said, what happened to the high? What ha why are we stoned instead of high? And what it was is that we didn't know what the component was. We couldn't test for it. There wasn't a test to test for it yet. But what, what had happened is with the war on drugs, these plants that grew well in Morocco were being or, or these kind of those types of climates were being brought here because they would grow well under artificial light. And when they came into the breeding programs here, they brought something called myrcene. And myrcene is an essential oil that's found in nutmeg and mangoes and lots of other plants also that is very sedative. So it's good for pain and sleep. So when dispensary staff are talking about an indica, they're talking about a plant that creates a lot of myrcene, mm. okay? And that is the effect, that heavier high, that body high, good for pain and sleep, that's what they're describing. They just don't really know what the terms mean, but that's what they're indicating. So it's kind of like the best, you can only kind of, you know, work with the tools you've got. Right. So they're describing it the best way they can but that's what they're really referring to is an effect. Okay, it just so happens that these morphologies affect that. Right, and now the, the phrase is indica in the couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or couch lock is kind yeah. of a phrase that I hear yeah. a lot too, you know, we, well, this is something that's really gonna lay you down, Yeah. right? And I didn't know mangoes had that. That's why I love yeah. mangoes so much, because yeah. I always feel so happy when I eat mangoes. They're very kind of chill. They are. Right? They're very kind of relaxed. They're kind of a sexy fruit. Too. Yeah, they are kind of a sexy fruit. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's really fascinating that your nose 
can tell you a lot about the effect that you're going to experience before you even use it. How do you right? mean? Well, in the sense that, for instance, myrcene has a very kind of woody note. It's what people are, are kind of referring to when they, when they use the term dank, D-A-N-K. Mm. They're referring to this kind of grandma's closet kind of smell, this kind of and not moldy, but kind of musty smell, um, like dried leaves or something, and that's typically myrcene. But if you have uh, some flower material and it smells more floral and more like citrus, so there's a component called limonene, and limonene is the note. It's the, it's the essential oil or terpene, the labelling block of an essential oil, that is the reason that if you went anywhere in the world and picked up a piece of citrus fruit and scratched its peel, you would know that you were holding citrus without even opening it. Mm -hmm. You would, everyone would know it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the note that tells you that what you're holding is citrus, right? But limonene is a natural light antidepressant. So if you were looking for those smells and it kind of taught yourself almost like a sommelier what those smells represented in terms of effect, then you would you'd have a little clue mm -hmm. as to what you were using and how it was going to impact you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, it's fun. I really find that, that that's that's really so interesting. I love it. I'm learning so much. Um, any final thoughts that you? I don't want to take up all your day. I think. What have we talked? We talked about. You mentioned a website. Um, yeah, I have the. I have the can't. We are we are, in the process right now. I have a frequent writing partner, and um, I'd like to mention the book if you don't mind. I would love you and to mention. And it's um, yeah, the second edition just came out. It's a bestseller on Amazon. That's great. I'll put so links to it that. on Hey Human Podcast. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Because what we're doing also with the website is we're going to have the big information on the book there. Great. But yeah, and the podcast. Yeah. I mean, the, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> getting my words. Yeah. The website is called the Canna Review. Canna Review. So it's, it's called the Canna Review. Okay. And the book is called Cannabis Pharmacy. And it has a foreword by, by Dr. Andrew Weil, which is one of the reasons we were able to kind of get some traction with it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll put yeah. that on the links page. Yeah, and I'll be happy to, to mention it too. And because, you know, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. We've talked about kind of how the ECS works and how <clears throat> it's really widespread and how those systems can kind of affect one another. But I'm just trying to think if there's like common holes, the things that I get asked a lot. That might be helpful to you. Is there anything that I've said that you found to be confusing, or that you think that I could? Because I have about eight different ways to explain. No, I mean I think you did a really great job of all that for sure. Anything that you're kind of thinking of that you wish you or things you wish you knew you understood how it worked? I have a question. So you bring up the scent, and I know that all of our systems are clearly connected because mm -hmm. it's one giant body sure. um and if smoking cannabis does something to the body mm -hmm. would an essential oil that you, you sniff do that you bet in fact it's something you have to kind of watch out for oh really because okay. yeah in fact that would be actually a, a really interesting thing okay. so yeah 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 <laughs> yeah so what it is is so so um I, I once had a woman um, tell me a story about how she had she lives in a neighborhood where she lived within walking distance of her local grocery store and she had used a very small amount of THC not even enough to have like a glass of wine effect this was you know like a milligram milligram and a half so just enough to kind of take the edge off of her anxiety and then she walked to the grocery store and her grocery store was a really nice grocery store and it had a whole section of like natural 
care products and things like that. And it had one of those displays for essential oils, the little testers that you can smell. And she proceeded to go and, you know, smell the different testers. Well, she found herself to be extremely high. And what happened was, is your olfactory nerve, the nerve in your nose that allows you to smell, that's kind of that translation between the smell and your brain, right? That nerve is the only exposed nerve in your entire body. So it's extremely sensitive. Now, if she had not had that THC in her system, then, it, then inhaling those might have slightly affected her mood or it might have shifted her mood in some way. But the fact that she had a cannabinoid in her system, we don't know exactly what the mechanism is, but we know that there is a magnifying effect. It's called, in pharmacology, it's called a synergistic effect. And what that means is, is that when you have a cannabinoid present, we think that it might be that it's allowing other things to cross more easily over the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is a chemical barrier in your bloodstream, kind of before the brain, that developed when we, at some point in our evolutionary development, were kind of in a war with the plants. So plants were trying to keep us from eating them, and we wanted to eat them, so our bodies kept developing ways to kind of counter plant poisons. So the blood-brain barrier is believed to be our body's response to plant poisons, but it does a really good job. So a lot of essential oils, or the components of essential oils, these terpenes, don't cross readily into the brain, okay? So when you have a cannabinoid present, we believe it allows that process to occur more readily. So in a way, having a cannabinoid in your system allows you to take advantage of the promises of aromatherapy that don't sometimes quite seem to be delivered upon, Whoa. right? So this woman had THC in her system, went to a grocery store, did some pretty deep inhalation of essential oils, and those two things together had a very strong effect. Fascinating. Okay? Wow. So but that's, what, that's what's called also the entourage effect. So it's when you're combining different compounds and they make each other more effective. Oh, right? So interesting. Which is also, in a way, not that dissimilar. And it was different mechanisms. I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit here. But it's not that dissimilar from how cannabinoids can, could be potentially dramatically helpful with the opioid crisis, right? Because cannabinoids, when present, for instance, if CBD is, in, if you, you take CBD and you are also taking a, an opiate, even though CBD cannot dock at a mu opioid receptor, which is the receptor that takes up opioids in the body, even though it can't dock directly, kind of like what's called an agonist, like a direct, good, strong link, it is something called an allosteric modulator. It means it, it's kind of sneaking in the side door. but what CBD, having CBD present, or even, even THC, by coming in the kind of side door like that, it supports the opioid at the receptor, so it allows it to be effective at the receptor longer and more effective while it's there. Meaning you don't have to take 50 pills a day. Exactly. Something. And we originally saw this in interviewing people and talking to nurses who were working with hospice patients. Because oh, what they found sure. was, is that when they kind of had the feeling that maybe some of their patients were maybe using cannabis, well actually, let me back up. They started to notice that certain patients, when they could self-administer 
you know, be like a little clicker in their hand, that they could self-administer pain medications to themselves. There were certain patients that didn't do it nearly as often as the others. And these were patients that they would have expected the pain levels to be extremely high. And so they kind of were really curious about this. Why are these certain patients not self-administering as much pain medications? And what they found in some cases, those, pain, those, those patients were kind of sneaking a little cannabis in on the side. So what was happening is they were self-medicating and making the opiates they did take more effective. Now that was kind of a magical thing for these hospice nurses because what they also noticed as a byproduct of that is that those people were better able to be with their families end of life. So they were not as sedated, they were not kind of knocked out in a way by these opiates so they could be more present. Um, and that was a pretty amazing thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, the current administration um, and, you know, our current Attorney General are not taking seriously the impact, the positive impact that cannabis could have on reducing the addiction, the, the addictive profile of, of opiates. So people could use less and take it less frequently if they had some cannabinoids present. So that's a dramatic thing in a crisis that's really kind of out of control. Yeah, it makes me wonder though if the people who sell the opioid wants that to happen. You know what I mean? It's, it's that whole sure. follow the money thing. Sure, yeah, it is kind of a follow the money thing. And I guess that, you know, I think that there are, it's a pretty, you know, when you look at the history of Oxycontin, there was a fascinating New York Times article about the family that basically pushed all of that out there. It was a, it was a, it was a very, it was a major PR effort and very unethical and um, kind of frightening. I'll have to find that article. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating article and, and disturbing that, that a single family could come in and, 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 and really underpin this crisis that we're seeing now. And, but at the same time, I also I feel like we could get stuck a bit um, by focusing on what went wrong. If, and it might be a better use of our energy and time to figure out where the potential solutions are. That makes um, sense. I have a, a writer whose work I like a lot. Um, her name is Clarissa Pinkola Estes, and she looks at kind of fairy tales and Jungian myths and things like that for lessons to how to live. And one of the things that she said is she said, you know, wisdom is doing what works. You know, and my, and my, my grandmother had a very similar kind of um, expression. And so when I think of, you know, wisdom is doing what works, I think, well, I could be very, very angry. And, you know, there are definitely things going on politically that I'm pretty angry about. But at the same time, I need to figure out a positive outlet for that so that I'm proactive and I actually am a part of change and not just kind of feeding the anger and fear that's already there. And I think that things around the opiate crisis, things around medicine are, are areas we really have to do that. Yeah, really, that's very well said. Yeah. Amy, thank you. You're very welcome. This has been fantastic. Great. I learned so much. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Great questions. Very, oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, I, again, I will put all that information about your upcoming website. It won't be upcoming when we launch this, so it'll okay. be out there. So everyone listening, mm -hmm. please go visit. So the website is the, T-H-E, Canna, C-A-N-N-A, Review, R-E-V-I-E-W, dot com. Perfect. And the book that I worked, worked on and collaborated with, with my writing partner, is Cannabis Pharmacy. It has a forward by Dr. Andrew Weil, and it's available on Amazon. There is, There are two editions of it. The second edition just came out shortly. That's great. Um, or just came out. 
And uh, it is the, the author on that is Michael Backus, my writing partner. Um, and that's as spelled B-A-C-K-E-S. Perfect. And again, I'll put that on HeyHumanPodcast.com on the links page. And since it's on Amazon, Amazon helps support Hey Human too. So it's a win-win for everybody. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, everyone, You're welcome. for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.